0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Mario Martinez. Mario is a licensed clinical neuropsychologist specializing in the emerging fields of contemplative psychology and psychoneuroimmunology. He's the author of The Man from Autumn, as well as the Sounds True audio learning program, The Mind-Body Code, How the Mind Wounds and Heals the Body, I spoke with Mario about his theory of biocognition, which views individuals as part of an inseparable, holistic, living field of mind, body, and historical culture, and how we can use the power of the mind to affect our wellness and fulfillment. Mario, you've been here with Sounds True, recording an audio learning series on the mind body code. And you teach something called biocognition. Now, this is a big word. You're going to have to help me. What is biocognition?
1: I had to invent the word uh, because I was looking at things in a holistic way. And medicine and science breaks things down into mind, body, psychosomatic, not psychosomatic. So I was trying to figure out a word that would bring together mind, body, spirit in a culture, in a culture history. So I came up with the word biocognition. And biocognition basically looks at how our mind and our body and our spirit develop within a culture. Because what happens is that we think that things are happening without the cultural admonitions that we're getting from day one. And the culture will kill you before the genes do. Hmm. Is that powerful? So basically it's it's a term to describe a process of how we develop as individuals within a culture. And the culture is the one that shapes you even more than your biology even more than your genes. Hmm.
0: Well, let's just break the word down since you invented it, you made it up. I mean, bio, that's uh, the referring biology. to our biology, yes. our physical self. And then cognition is how how we think about things, right? How we right?
1: process the belief systems. And in cognition, uh, in biology, you can include the, the f- feelings, the sensations. In cognition, you can include thoughts, but also spirit, because a spirit is a, a transcendental thought that you're having. And then the culture uh, is kind of implicit in there, the culture is basically the shaper of our reality. And the word came around, um, one of my mentors was uh, George Solomon, he was the one who invented the word psychoimmunology back at UCLA, when he found that the immune system responds to psychological processes, because they almost laughed him out of UCLA, hmm. so he called it psychoimmunology. Then Bob Ader later comes out, and he finds that not only psychology, but the nervous system affects the, uh, the immune system. So he called it psychoneuroimmunology. So it's like a Frankenstein effect. You know, they're putting one piece after mm-hmm. another. Then they find that the heart responds to the immune system, to thoughts, and they start calling it psychoneurocardio. So one day I called George Solomon and I said, I have a word. And he said, how long is it? <laughs> so I said, it's biocognition. So biocognition brings psychoneuroimmunology together with medical anthropology, mystical theology, because psychonommunology studies how thoughts and emotions affect the immune system, the nervous system, the endocrine system, but it does it void of a culture, uh-huh. no culture. Medical anthropology looks at the conception of illnesses, the, um, um, the interventions of the illness without looking at the biology, without looking at the psychonommunology. So they both come together in biocognition. You're looking at mind, body, culture, and then of course spirit, I look at good Mystical theology, both Eastern, uh, I like Tibetan Buddhist psychology the best as far as what I do, and also Western contemplative psychology, which is very powerful also, from the mystics uh, like Teresa of Avila and others. And uh, there's a body of, of work right now in, in contemplative psychology. that's very impressive.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, how did you come to this? And w- what's your background?
1: Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I came about this out of frustration. Uh, that's my, a good way to come about something yeah, new uh, frustrated, what, yeah. what do you do and I was finding that people um, I was doing some really good therapy I thought and they were getting it they were understanding and they could regurgitate it back to me but they weren't getting better they knew all everything that needed to be known it was the intellectual and I was even doing some experiential things relaxation and so forth but not realizing that symbols are the thing that the biology responds to so if you know something intellectually and you say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a good person or I'm going to have a good relationship, you may not be aware of the language that you were taught by your culture. And in biocognition, what I found was that going across cultures, was very, uh, to me it was very educational to go across cultures because we get very ethnocentric and we think that our culture is the reality. It's only one reality. So I found that I was looking at how can people be wounded uh, emotionally. And the good news is that you can only be wounded three ways. Uh, which not is,
0: sure if that's good news or not, but okay. Well, at least
1: uh, you, you can identify them and not more yeah. than three. Okay. And basically, um, shame, abandonment, and, and betrayal. So, those wounds usually are inflicted by people that are important in your life. People that are either have an authority over you or you need them for survival, like father, mother, and so forth. And those wounds are taught in the process of exchanging intimacy and love. So therefore we wrap the wounds around the love. So if you are learning intimacy or the connection with mother or father through shaming, you cannot have love without shame. So you look for shame to be spoken fluently in the relationships. And each of them has a, a an immunological response. So that's how people get sick and that's how people perpetuate their reality and think, well, I. I'm just not a lucky person. Every time I go into a relationship, it's the same thing. It's abusive, or it's this, or it's that. Right.
0: Okay, so let's, let's slow down for a moment here. So these three ways that we can be wounded, what you're saying is that all humans, regardless of culture, all over the world, are only wounded in these three ways. Yes. And how did you come to that conclusion?
1: Because I've, in every culture, I challenge people to come up with a fourth one, and they couldn't. Uh, and, and I saw how the initial language of all of the cultures that I've studied, both Eastern and Western and so forth, African, and is, is basically a language that, that revolves around those three wounds when you're wounding. And it's not what you tell the child. It's how you interact with that child. So you might say, I want you to be an honest person. And any time that child is honest, you shame them. Well, what they're learning is shame related to honesty rather than being honest. That's an intellectual thing that we think we're teaching, we're not. That's the explicit language. The implicit language is what the biology picks up. So then, honesty for you is a shaming emotion. And you're not going to practice honesty, or you're going to practice it with shame. You're going to teach honesty with shaming. So if you want your partner to be honest, you'll teach your partner with shame. Mm -hmm. And you don't realize that your partner is is being shamed. The other thing, too, is from psychonominology. You know, there's a model of... um, of stress that comes from Hans Selye back in the, in the 50s, and that's all they studied. Cortisol, stress, no cortisol, no stress. And that's nice, but it's not sufficient. So the latest work in psychoneurology, they're looking at what does, for example, shame do to the immune system. And they found that it doesn't do anything to the cortisol. So if you use the stress model, you're saying shame doesn't do anything. You know, No big deal. No stress. When they look at what's called pro-inflammatory products, which are the things that cause the inflammation, that goes up significantly when you're shamed. And that's what causes cardiovascular illnesses, rheumatoid arthritis, and many other illnesses. So my work is language has to be inseparable from wellness in whatever we do, whatever language we, we use.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, but let's still track back, because what you were talking about is how we change through symbols. You introduce this idea of symbols, and then you explain these three different ways we can be wounded across the world. So what's the connection between the three different kinds of wounding and symbols and the way the body responds to symbols?
1: Okay. Um, if you look at language, uh, language is basically a descriptor of, of, of a symbol and of imagery. So language is kind of like the map and the symbols and the imagery are the territory. Okay. And the res- the biology responds to the symbols and the imagery, not to the language. Okay. Because the language is, is the, the map. Right. So, for example, if you shame someone with a word, you say, here you go again. Right. That, that's a that's a word. Yep. But that word is basically inciting a symbol that's associated with shame. So here's a word, a, a symbol, that's causing biology. It's causing inflammatory product, so it has to be biosymbolic. Everything that we exchange has a biological component. We're biological beings. Every communication, every everything we do has to have biology, so therefore it can't be anything other than biosymbolic.
0: So you're saying that associated with shame, abandonment, and betrayal are different chemical and biological responses when we have experienced those traumas. Our bodies have responded to that yes. in certain kinds yes. of ways. So we'll just keep going with the example you're using about shame. How does a body respond to shame? And then is that different in different cultures? Because you're saying that the cultural piece is so important.
1: That's a great question. Uh, that's a really good question. It, it's archetypal, it's universal, and the, uh, the culture will give it the flavor of how to shame you. So, for example, if you're a Maasai warrior, they'll shame you because you didn't kill the lion at 14. In, uh, in in Nashville uh, you 're not playing the guitar very well okay but but the immune system responds the same way, and the culture dictates the flavor of how to shame you, but the immune system responds the same way to shame across the world across the world and
0: how does how does our immune system respond to shame
1: by by secreting the inflammatory and here's the, the fascinating thing inflammatory products are necessary to cause inflammation around a, a wound or around a, an infection to protect and to encapsulate that infection so then the immune system can in and fight. Well, interestingly, the immune system is responding as if you're actually being wounded because it secretes the pro-inflammatories. So the immune system doesn't know the difference between symbolic and biosymbolic. It's biosymbolic. So if you are living in a world of shame, in a world that you speak shame fluently, you're going to trigger, most likely, Illnesses like cardiovascular, uh, like uh, even cancer, because it, it, it has an, an immunological uh, deficiency. And what George Solomon found, when, and that's how he be- actually called it psychoimmunology, is that before it was thought you have genetics uh, and your genetics will determine everything and there's nothing you do, can do about genetics. So he took uh, the, um, something that's very genetic, he took rheumatoid arthritis. You have to have the rheumatoid factor for arthritis to present itself. So he started looking at uh, siblings and twins, very uh, genetic, who both had the, the genetic factor. One developed the rheumatoid arthritis, the other one didn't. And there was one set of siblings that had pretty much uh, represented the whole picture. And both had been severely sexually abused by their father. They were in their 40s. One had crippling rheumatoid arthritis. The other one was an athlete and hmm. very healthy. Okay. And he asked them, here's the, the bio symbol. What is your dad still alive? Oh, yes. The the one with the rheumatoid arthritis. He's still alive. And do you see him? Yes, I do. I see him twice a week. And every time I see him, I remember what he did to me and my symptoms get really bad. And I go to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, it's just stress. You know, just stress when you see your dad because he's sick. Mm-hmm. The other one, he asked her, what's your relationship with your dad? And she said, I can't wait. I, <laughs> I can, I'm, I'm, hope I can say this. I can't wait for the SOB to die so I can yeah. spit on his grave. Yeah. And that's called righteous anger. Yeah. So that's right. good for our immune system. Very good, All right, very good like for it. the immune system. I it's like righteous it. anger. But you don't spin in the, in the anger. You think about your dad, you get angry, you let it go. Uh-huh. You don't live in anger. She wasn't an angry... Yeah, I
0: understand. Uh,
1: you know, uh, Brief
0: bouts of righteous that's anger. That's right. Okay. Very
1: good for the immune system. Yeah. So then he thought, hmm, psychology has something to do with the immune system, so I'm going to call it psychoimmunology. But any, any paradigm shift, the first thing you get is disdain. They thought, ha, huh, you must be so naive. How can the immune system be related to... To, bio- to psychological processes. Uh-huh. And then the research came out more and more, yeah. and basically it, it is related.
0: So really what you're positing here is that biocognition is in some way a next flowering of psychoneuroimmunology. Is that what you're saying?
1: It, it, uh, it's a unifying theory. Okay. It brings psychoneuroimmunology mystical theology and medical anthropology together
0: that's very ambitious mark it is
1: i know just uh, sometimes uh, i feel like a megalomaniac but uh, <laughs> who else is going to do it you know somebody's okay. got to do it
0: <laughs> okay well okay so i want to go back now how does my biology my immune system respond to abandonment
1: oh okay um the the way to identify these wounds is they have even a temperature okay and they of course a, a child doesn't know the word abandonment they don't know the word shame but they know how it feels. So if you, let's go with shame and then we'll go to abandonment so you can see the difference. Shame feels hot. You feel very hot and you feel a humiliation and and a sense of um, shrinking. You have been uh, humiliated. You have been put into a position that you feel like you want to disappear. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So it's hot and it's humiliating, embarrassing. Those are the components. When you go to uh, abandonment, you feel cold. And you feel isolated and you feel very fearful that you're not going to see the loved one again. So mm-hmm. it's a cold emotion with the sense of isolation, aloneness. A child doesn't mm-hmm. know isolation, but they know aloneness. Where's everybody? Mm-hmm. And uh, the um, betrayal is an emotion that's hot and it's anger. Mm-hmm. And you can see it very early. Let me give you an example. If you, if you were a child, a four-year-old, and you tell him, I'll give you this little toy if you smile, and the child smiles okay, do it again. And the child smiles. And the third one, you say, no, I'm not going to give it to you. The child gets angry yeah, because it's been tricked yeah. and they get red. So yeah. you see, it's very early. Yeah. And the immune system has different ways of, of responding. Shame is the one that's been studied the most. Okay. Uh, abandonment has more of a cortisol response because it's a fear, fight or flight. It's it's very primitive. It's a survival kind of uh, emotion. Uh, it's, it's very powerful because, and it could happen and you'll know if you're in a wound when you overreact the situation. Let's say you're, having, you're meeting somebody for lunch, and that person's 15 minutes late, and you begin to feel this. You could yeah. get angry later, but initially yeah. you get the cold. And you start feeling this overwhelming emotion that's not commensurate with the person yeah. being late. You're dumping all your abandonment history into that moment. Yeah. So then you respond with abandonment.
0: Now, of course, it's possible that people will have experienced all three yeah, absolutely. of these. And yes, it's not like oh, this is my I'm no, the no. shame type or the betrayal. No, no, no. You could be
1: all three wounds are welcome here. That's right. See, in my case, I have all three. I come from a Catholic uh, background, so I had a PhD in shame uh, uh-huh. yeah. at, at nine. Yeah, but yes, you you have you can have all three, but there's a salient one that's kind of the the, the one that you are responding to the most
0: okay and you're' part of the theory here that this wounding all happened very early in our early life, in life very yes. very early yes. so we, we, we can't necessarily track it conceptually in our mind no so how do we discover which of these wounding patterns is running our life
1: well the with one of the techniques that I used that was in the uh, in the series um, you none of these things can be accessed intellectually. intellectual. So you have to go into deep relaxation. You have to go into brain waves that are receptive to new information. Yeah. And also so that the nervous system doesn't protect you with the rationalizations and all the things that we've built. Yeah. So you go into deep relaxation and you, for example, if you're wanting to work with abandonment, you go to the first, how did
0: you, how did you know? No, just kidding. I'm a psychic. Okay, you know, that's right, yeah,
1: okay. <laughs> we speak it fluently. That's now. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, um, What happens then is you, you, under deep relaxation, you begin to ask yourself, when did I first feel this kind of cold feeling of being alone? Uh, Very early in my life. And you start getting images. You get sensations of coldness. And all of a sudden you realize that or you get the sense that uh, um, you were four years old and mommy was going to pick you up from the uh, kindergarten. She was late and everybody was waiting. And Where's mommy? Right there. Or uh, you had a, an alcoholic father who wasn't emotionally available there. No, it's it's an abandonment, but it's an emotional abandonment. The other one's a physical abandonment, and so forth. So, or an intellectual abandonment, any you come up with anything, uh, Mommy, look what I did in school. Look, like two plus two equals four. Oh, that's nice. An intellectual abandonment. So that's the wound. And then, then we have a healing field that you learn to identify, because the the... Uh, I guess the healing field for abandonment is commitment, hmm. and the psychonominology changes, the the biology changes from disempowered to empowered. So, okay, let's, so
0: can, can you explain how is the healing field commitment? What do you mean?
1: Well, if you have been disempowered by a wound, yeah. abandonment, the the reempowering uh, process is commitment, commitment consciousness to I'm replace. Com- I'm committing. You're making commit a commitment to yourself about something. So in in at the yeah. lunch uh, example. Yeah. Your friend is late, you're feeling that abandonment, and you feel yeah. the coldness and then anger yeah. later, uh, and you are building up all this language from so many years. First thing you do, you have to embody, it, know what it's doing to your body. You breathe and be aware. What it, don't try to relax it, just try to breathe so, so that the breathing takes care of it. And then, what is a commitment that I can make right now to myself? All right, the commitment I'm making right now is that I'm going to let this person know that next time they're late, I'm going to either leave or I'm going to start eating. And that commitment replaces the disempowerment that you got. Okay. And it changes the biochemistry. Okay. And then you start acting and living in commitment. But then, since we co-author that, you have to look at how many people do I speak abandonment fluently with? And you have to start changing the relationship. So it's very evidence-based.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. And what's the healing field for shame and betrayal? Honor. For,
1: honor. for for shame is honor.
0: Okay. What, is that, what does that mean?
1: Honor is that if you're shamed, you at that moment embody it see what it feels like and you go into an honor consciousness what would be the honorable thing that i need to do here right now Uh so an example would be you're at a corporate meeting uh you come in and your your work isn't complete and the ceo says here you go again messing up and all of a sudden you see this overwhelming feeling yeah and then what you want to do usually is respond with, with with shame so you stop you embody it, and once you learn how to do it, you can do it very quickly.
0: So what does embody? You mean you feel it? You, f- you feel it in your, where it is in your body? How, how it, it manifests. Like? Okay. It
1: manifests in the body. And then, what is the honorable thing for me to do here? The honorable thing would be, for example, the, the work is not complete. I'll take care of that, and I'll get it done, but I'm not going to allow you to talk to me this way. Right. Boundaries. You regain the boundaries that were taken away from you many, many years ago. Right. And then you put a mirror in people's face in their faces, to let them know what they're doing to you, how, they, how they're treating you. Now, if the person just says to you, uh, well, I'm sorry that you didn't have this ready, you know, it's not a shaming. Yeah. you took it as a shame, you could say, well, what's the honorable thing to do? You're absolutely right, I'll get it done, and it'll be done at 3 o'clock. Honor embodies, mm-hmm. and, 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 and you, you re, I mean, you, when you practice it, you'll see, I mean, just uh, immediately it re-empowers you again. Mm-hmm.
0: And then the healing field
1: for betrayal. For betrayal is loyalty.
0: So how does that, give me an example for that. So
1: um, you have been betrayed by, let's say the worst thing, your partner betrays you with another person.
0: Yeah, that's pretty bad. Uh,
1: pretty bad. That's that's pretty bad. bad. Betrayal is one of the worst yep. to, to work through. Then the thing that you would do then is respond with betrayal language, which is I'm going to betray you or I'm not worthy because if I were worthy, yeah. all the interpretations that we make. Yeah. Then what is, the, what is the loyalty thing that I need to do here? And it's loyalty to myself. To be loyal to myself, what are the boundaries that I need to set? Either that this relationship is over, or that I set some boundaries uh, so that we both have to be loyal to those boundaries, or loyalty to something beyond the moment that caused the, uh, the, be- the betrayal. And, and you'll see that when you go into that consciousness of, betray- of, of loyalty, you get very creative, because you also have history of loyalty, you also have history of commitments, and you have history of, um, of honor. And in the technique, what, what I do is I teach people also to go back to times when they were honorable mm-hmm. so they can have the psychonorminology of what honor feels like. And usually when you do it, you'll find that they, the the wounds are very localized, tension localized. The healing feels are very systemic. It's like a current, like a flow, because they more exalted emotions. Uh-huh. And and they have Im- all kinds of changes in your body. even the chemistry of your of, of your brain changes. So
0: what you're saying is when we introduce these healing fields. We identify our core wounds, introduce these healing fields that are the chemistry of our bodies, our health actually changes. Yes. So could you sh- talk me through how, for example, does the chemistry of the body change with each of these healing fields?
1: Okay. So let's let's take shame because okay. it's the most studied. Uh, you're not aware that you're speaking shame fluently. You shame people, they shame you back. Yeah. It's a... So you're, you don't know that you're secreting a lot of pro-inflammatory products on a daily basis. Okay. And then that will interact with your genetic predisposition. Let's say you have a genetic predisposition for rheumatoid arthritis. Okay. And you start having symptoms of arthritis. Yeah. And you go to a doctor and they'll give you this, they'll give you that. Nothing related to the biosymbolic because it's treating the symptom. Once you learn what you're doing and you begin to speak honor and you begin to see the relationships they're speaking shame, and modifying them. Pro-inflammatory products are reduced. Symptoms of arthritis improve. Hmm. So you don't know, or we don't know the damage that we do to ourselves by the bio-information that we exchange. Mm -hmm. So as you begin to change that, you begin to change the biochemistry that you're secreting on a a daily basis. I have patients who've had terrible um, pain from from the arthritis, Mm -hmm. uh, and they start with these changes, they do the techniques, and the pain begins to uh, subside, and even the inflammation sometimes begins to, to subside because they 're no longer producing the things that lead to to the exacerbation of the problem
0: mm-hmm. Now you have become interested in the lives of people who have lived to be a hundred centenarians, and what we can learn from them. How, how does that relate to these three core traumas and, and I mean, how did you get interested in this topic anyway?
1: Because I, I thought, well, I want to be around for a long time, but with quality of life. Okay. So where do I go? Go to the experts, not right. the doctors, the yeah. centenarians. Centenarians don't go to doctors. And when you ask them, what do your doctors uh, say about it? It's, I don't know. They're all dead. So they, don't, they go to the doctor when they break a leg. And I'm not su- suggesting that you shouldn't. That's how they are. Yeah. So centenarians are people that I can teach them very little.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So when I went to them, I thought... They know more than I do. Well, maybe I can. So, how from. did
0: you find these people? How many did you talk to?
1: Um, I first looked at it from the research in in, in, in centenarianism. Okay, so this is a category you can. Yes, yeah, you can. Okay. You can. And, and by the way, it's a fastest growing segment of the population in the United States. Uh huh. Seventy five thousand right now. So, I went to uh, study the the American centenarians, the Vilcabamba in Ecuador, the uh, Tarhumaras, who are not centenarians, but they they believe that they're runners, and they believe that as you grow older, you become a better runner.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then Harvard did a study and they found that runners in their 60s had better cardiovascular system than runners in their 20s. Mm-hmm. Totally flips medicine upside mm. down. Uh, the Okinawans, the um, centenarians of the caucus, and they all had very um, very defined personality styles and cultures that, that went across the different cultures. So for, now, for one, one example... All centenarians are negotiators. They negotiate hmm. life. They don't. They get depressed. Well, what do I do with this depression? Number one. Number two, they are all uh, slightly underweight, even though some of them are a little bit overweight, but you don't have obese centenarians. You don't have atheist centenarians. They're not religious, but they're spiritual. Mm-hmm. Also, the culture, the subculture where they live in, supports that growing older is a good thing, and you are a source of knowledge. hmm they don't believe, they don't even understand the word middle age. Middle age is a killer. I'll tell you about it in a minute. Mm-hmm. They don't uh, believe in retirement. There's no, why I Retire from what I love, but see the implication is that they do what they love. Yeah. There was a major study that was done on predicting heart attacks. And after they factored out the smoking and all these other things, they, they, you asked two questions. Do you love your work and do you love yourself? If you say no to those two, it's worse than smoking. Wow. And they love their work. They, they don't. And, and Ellen Langer did some studies on, on looking at uh, middle age, and she looked at the people. And this is where I got my attention: uh, people that look significantly older than their age, and people that look younger. Yeah. And she found that the factor, the determining factor, was that people that look younger believe that middle age starts fifteen years later. Uh huh. So middle age starts at seventy-five. I like it. Yeah. And when you get to seventy-five, it starts at eighty. So you trick the immune system every time you. You're moving along. <laughs>
0: now, is there any relationship between the wounds we were talking about, these, you know, betrayal, abandonment and shame and the resolution of those wounds and living to a hundred?
1: Yes, yes. They, they intuitively do what I teach. You ask them about, and they have pretty difficult lives. Some of these people have been in concentration camps and, yeah. and they have, but, but what they do is they don't spin on the, on the wound and since they're negotiators, they intuitively Bring out honor and intuitively bring out commitment. Intuitively bring out the the healing fields without even knowing what they're doing. So, there's one that I interviewed who had been he from a, he was from Estonia. He had been in a labor camp. Uh, the Nazis took over Estonia, and he for for three years. And he said, you know, one of the most interesting things that happened is that my mother was very upset with me because I couldn't write her. And later, when I got out, I said, Mom, I couldn't write you because I was in a concentration camp. You see. Humor, not yeah. not covering it up. Yeah. He was really, truly responding with, with honor and responding with commitment. He, he wasn't saying, "Oh, mom, look at what I went through. How difficult I couldn't." He didn't victimize himself. Yeah. So the joy is a component of, of centenarianism. They don't they don't uh, uh, gloss over it. He went through his pain and everything, but he saw the humor and he said, "Well, you know, I'm out now. So why am I going to complain if I'm out?" That kind of recovery is very powerful for them. If it's real recovery, pseudo-recovery would be Pollyanna. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. Intention Mm -hmm. doesn't work. It has to be integrated. So I saw that in them, and I saw these people recover really well. They forgive very easily. That's another important not forgiving kills. And they also, when you're around them, you want to grow old because Mm -hmm. they're so exciting to be around.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, now you said something interesting. Intention doesn't work. I mean, there's a lot of talk about oh, yes, you know, the know. power of intention, yeah. going to, you know, healing through intention, but you're, now you're saying intention doesn't work?
1: No, it doesn't work by itself because it's only a, um, a thought about something. Now, there is something about uh, imagery uh, with emotions that helps uh, healing at a distance with okay. Larry Dossey's work and things yeah. like that. But the intention that says, I am going to be very wealthy and I'm going to think about wealth, it's not going to go anywhere. Right. It requires action and requires cleaning the wounds first. Because uh-huh. if you don't clean the wounds, the money will come to you and you'll, you'll sabotage it within two weeks.
0: Right, and that these wounds are functioning often at an unconscious level. Yes. And our intention is often something that's happening just with the conscious part of our mind. So the unconscious is sort of sabotaging whatever this that's is right. intentional.
1: People that win the, the lottery in the U.S. keep it for 18 months on the average. Mm-hmm. They can't handle that. Joy is a very dangerous emotion. You have to be real careful with joy. What do you mean mean by that? Well, because we have boundaries of abundance and when something really good comes it shakes you up and if you're not ready to handle it if you're if your worthiness is not ready to handle it, it turns into a stress reaction.
0: Yeah. So that, that idea that there's a, a, a boundary to our joy, or what I've, I've heard referred to as the threshold of happiness. Yes. You can't really go beyond your threshold of happiness. Now, now of course, I want to bust that open. I want okay. to increase my threshold oh, of no, my you joy can. and happiness. Yeah. And so what is your recommendation? How am I going to do that?
1: All right. Well, first is to know that, that, that joy is dangerous. because It's a danger I want. They, 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 they know it's wonderful to have it, okay. but you have to do it with the right tools so you can have joy without getting sick. Okay. And that sounds terrible, but that's how it is, I think. You have uh, joy as a very powerful fluid or fuel, and then the, the uh, worthiness is the gate uh-huh. to it. If worthiness is, is very good, it opens up, and worthiness is bad, it, it shuts it down. Yeah. So what do you do? Again, you embody it. The, technique is, uh, the, 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 the theory is very um, um, consistent. You, for example, you could do a little experiment. You could say, all right, I make this amount of money a year. I'm going to do some imagery that I make 50 times what I'm making. All you. right. Isn't that great? Yeah. But then you do the imagery, all the money you could give to people, the yeah. wonderful things you could do. And you do that for five minutes, check your body, and the killjoy will be there. Your body's getting tense. Yeah. Because it's a new boundary in the yeah. versus turbulent. Yeah. So what do you do? You breathe into it, allow it to happen, and go back and forth, back and forth. And then you bring back in... Back
0: and forth between...
1: Between... Uh, doing the imagery of how much you want to make, yeah and how the body's responding to it negatively, okay your breathing will change, and then secondarily, you then look at the wound that stops you from moving faster yeah and and, and then things start happening, then intention works because it 's followed by joyful action yeah so my thinking is that your wishes work at the speed of your beliefs and at the strength of your joyful action uh-huh. that 's the key. So a lot of these uh, ideas that intention alone will do it don't really, uh, they're fairly naive because they don't look at the wounds and they don't look at how the brain processes things, that the brain has limits and you have to teach it to expand those limits, to accept it without creating stress for you.
0: So you're saying joy is dangerous because if, if this joy enters my system, I might just collapse underneath it because I don't, I mean, what's the danger actually? The
1: danger is that it's, it's, it's identified biochemically as a stress reaction. Uh so you have cortisol coming out and all kinds of things coming out the brain when you do functional MRIs the brain changes the the, it shifts the the attention
0: No, Uh, I mean I know what you're talking about some wonderful things have been happening to me in the past year and I've been more stressed out than ever and it's been hard to explain like I don't get it I mean this should be the year of my life and it's actually
1: you know I'm hysterical what I do is anytime anything good happens to me I do an expansion of, of the boundaries of abundance or the ceiling of abundance. Uh-huh. Anything, I do a meditation and I allow my worthiness to catch up.
0: Yeah, well, how, how do you allow your worthiness to catch up? I mean, that's a wonderful image and, and I agree with you that that's what it's about, our sense of, do I deserve this great joy in my life, this person, this, you know, flow of uh, success. But how, how do you address that core worthiness issue?
1: By Not intellectually, but by the actual mind-body processing of, let's say, something really good happens uh, and uh, you're all excited and you, actually you're getting nervous. you getting yeah, quite okay, nervous. Quite, yeah. nervous. Quite, quite nervous. The nervous, central yeah. nervous system is going yeah. on, cortisol is going on, adrenaline. And you say, okay, good. Now you sit and you allow that to happen. You embody, what's going on in my body? Don't change it. What's going on in my body? And once it begins to subside a little bit, then allow yourself to ask yourself, what wound do I have? And that sounds neurotic, but no, we do have them. What wounds do I have that stop me from from this worthiness and you get to a point where you say no wounds and you expand the boundaries but in, in the work we all have to do it I certainly have to do it quite a bit on on mine
0: and you believe people can do this on their own I they, mean work you're I mean not working you know directly with a therapist psychologist witness of some kind I mean this is deep work That you it is describe. deep work
1: and I think it's best done with a professional yeah because it enhances but if the professional doesn't understand this then it's very difficult to do uh-huh. So I, I suggest that it's done with a, with a uh, spiritual director, or a psychologist, or a shaman, or whatever, a physician, whatever you consider to be, but that person has to have some knowledge of mind-body in order to be enhanced.
0: And then do you train people in this work, in biocognition cognition yes. so that they can lead other people through these processes? Yes,
1: we work with physicians, psychologists, and uh, w- lately we've been getting a lot of um, executive coaches, uh-huh. so they can apply it to corporations, or people who just want to uh, use it for their relationships.
0: Mario, thank you. I mean, this is incredibly rich, how you've put together all these different fields into a a map of biocognition.
1: Thank you. We we co-authored Brilliance together. Thank you.
0: (laughs) This program has been brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey. ...offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Please visit us at SoundsTrue.com and experience our award-winning audio programs for yourself. Programs that embrace the world's major spiritual traditions, as well as the arts and humanities, embodied by the leading authors, teachers, and visionary artists of our time. With every title, we strive to preserve the essential, living wisdom of the author, artist, or spiritual teacher. Not only will you receive information, but you will receive the essential quality of a wisdom transmission between a teacher and a student. Many voices, one journey. Soundstrue.com.